Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. My name is Erin Mellano Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute. And as always, I have my wonderful co-host here, Dr. Kevin Caridad, the CEO and owner of Cognitive Behavior Institute. On this week's episode, we are very pleased to announce that we have joining us today, Dr. Jonathan Impelaziri. Dr. J, uh, professionally, uh, serves as clinical director at Cognitive Behavior Institute in Pittsburgh. He is an associate professor in Geneva's Counseling MA and Counseling Program. In 2017, he launched the Center for Marriage and Family at CBI, which focuses on providing high-quality relationship-oriented therapy that is research-informed, client-directed, and peppered with a healthy dose of compassion. He has extensive counseling experience in community-based, outpatient, and group private practice settings, and just recently published a scholarly article in the Journal of Counseling and Values, along with Bain, Michael, and Deitlin, entitled Impact of the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election on Politically Divided Relationships. So welcome to our podcast, The Barrier Breakdown, Dr. J. We're very excited to have you with us here today. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Happy to be here. Well, thanks for being here. We figured, you know, with a pandemic going on, political unrest, economic problems, we'd kind of have a nice subdued topic this week. So we're going to talk about politically divided relationships. Uh, So tell us about how you got interested in that and tell us us a lot about your research that, uh, that you've done. Okay, I will. Um, You know, I think just personally, I've had a growing interest uh, in politics probably over the past 15 years or so. Um, And yet I saw something that seemed to be different in the air uh, with the 2016 uh, election cycle with uh, the the level of emotional intensity, the the regrettable otherizing or or dehumanization process that's occurring with people who have uh, different political values seemed like there was this fracturing of American society right before my eyes. I saw it in some of my own relationships as well into these partisan uh, ideological tribes. Uh, And so uh, we we just started thinking some researchers and I, my goodness, what really is the impact of this current political climate on significant relationships? Uh, Not just any kind of relationship, but intimate partnerships, parents and children, coworkers. Um, And so I I gotta tell you, so it's my own family. I got a, a politically diverse family. On the one side, very conservative, kind of libertarian, even anti-vaxxer kind of crowd uh, to the other side of my family, who I think they probably wear their mask to bed at night. I mean, they are uh, very, very progressive and seeing things like defriending of relatives on social media and who's not coming to Thanksgiving. Something just seemed to be really, really different that time around. Good stuff. So it sounds like you, this this uh, this uh, research was uh, you weren't alone in this research. Is that right? That's exactly right. And so what we did. And I think it's some of the the brilliance behind it. And this is really the principal investigators work. Hannah Bain 
she strategically uh, compiled a team that was balanced politically. So we had two political research, uh, politically conservative researchers. We had two more progressive liberal researchers. The, the rationale here is we wanted to have insiders to both participant communities so that we would have a nice safeguard against bias. Um, and so there was this very interesting parallel process throughout. We're trying to understand politically divided relationships, even as we're navigating our own through uh, the, the research process. Great. And what were some of the takeaways from that research? Well, you know, th there was really a whole bunch. Um, but just for this purpose, what I want to speak to is uh, some of the findings around the strategies that our participants tended to use to navigate some of these politically uh, divided relationships. There really was a, a range of strategies that we observed, but all of them really could be funneled down into three basic uh, kinds of relationship strategies. So a turn away strategy, a turn against strategy, and then also uh, turn towards. Let me say a couple things about each of these. So the turn away responses, so participants, what we noticed them doing, sometimes taking just a respite, from the relationship, kind of pulling back, not talking anymore with that individual. For some of our participants, that was just a short-term thing. For others, sadly, that was a long-standing change in the relationship. So they just kind of stepped back and began to disengage and avoid the other person. Others, what we noticed them doing, it still had that same avoidance theme. They stayed engaged in the relationship, but there was this tacit, this implicit agreement not to talk about politics. And so politics became this kind of taboo in the relationship where there's just this understanding, let's not go there together. So that would be a, a turn away strategy. Um, the turn against strategies, these were viewed by our participants as being generally unhelpful uh, to the relationship. In fact, in some way it was uh, injurious to the relationship. Um, uh, a lot of what we saw with the turn against were really significant attempts at persuasion. Um, so these dialogues were not focused on understanding or expressing my political values. It was about changing uh, the other person. You need to see it my way. And sometimes getting a little bit aggressive about that. Uh, one of our couples that we interviewed, the husband shared that she, he was given an ultimatum uh, from his wife, vote for Trump, the marriage is over. Wow. Um, and so quite the dilemma for him as he went into the, the booth to cast his ballot. Um, and then other kinds of things that we saw that would be a, a turn against would be an attitude of contempt. So this sense of, oh, they're a DC elite, they just don't get it, or they're not as politically aware as I am. So this sense of relating to the other from a place of superiority uh, was really problematic. And we just know generally on research on intimate partnerships, contempt is, is a, probably the single greatest predictor of divorce in couple relationships. So we know that that can be uh, a pretty toxic thing. So we got turn away, turn against, but we also had turn towards. And we were very excited about the different turn toward uh, strategies that our participants used and found to be particularly helpful. There's a, a number of these, I'm maybe just gonna highlight a couple of them, uh, but one had to do with the use of humor and I loved this. Uh, there was one, a, a different couple that we had done some extensive interviewing around 
And when the conversation would get a little too charged, somebody would strategically lighten the mood. And sometimes what that would look like is she would look at him and say, oh, you're just a capitalist pig in a playful bantering kind of way. And he would call her a commie and then they'd move on and go eat cheesecake and it was no big deal. So they would use humor as a bid for connecting when they felt the tension was getting just a little too hot. Um, other things we saw is intentional editing or even self-monitoring. So individuals working hard cognitively, internally, to express themselves in ways uh, that are relationship honoring. Um, one of the things we saw, I thought this was really interesting, when the face-to-face -face conversations were not going too well, sometimes what folks would do is they would intentionally select an asynchronous form of communication um, as a strategy to lower the intensity of the relationship. So letter writing, sending an email, even trying to have some of these conversations over the phone rather than face-to-face, -face, just as an attempt to kind of lower the temperature. We did learn from our participants, many of them actually were able to have ongoing conversations uh, across the aisle. We saw that as a strength and another related strength that we saw is when the conversation was go, would go awry, some of these individuals were very good at making repair attempts, at finding ways to actually extend an olive branch um, and apologize and, and engage in those relationship maintenance uh, strategies. So those were, those were some of our bigger takeaways. We noticed a theme around avoidance, the turn away, a theme around turning against, but individuals, couples, parents, and adult children who were able to turn towards one another, even in the midst of this really challenging political environment. So that's interesting. You know, one of the things we've been seeing is just an increased rate in regular therapy. Have you noticed any difference in couples therapy? Has there been a, a greater need? And how about divorce statistics? Is there anything preliminary you've seen? So what I, I've not seen stats yet, anecdotally, uh, what I have heard from a number of my couple therapists is uh, uh, couple relationships are really under duress right now. Some of that has to do with politics. Some of that has to do with too much proximity because everybody's at home. <laughs> Apparently, there were a number of alarming divorce rates coming out of China um, early in the pandemic. Um, but what I do know is that this is impacting uh, couples in a pretty significant way. In fact, this is our, our principal investigator. Um, she is politically minded on one side of the spectrum. She's married to an individual who is on the opposite side. And that's actually what drove her interest in this is how do we stay connected uh, despite our differences? Thankfully, there's actually some good resources for couple therapists around helping couples to navigate some of this. We could talk about that a little bit if you like. That'd be great. I think a few things as, uh, as someone who's done couples a little bit and dabbled, I hear a lot of Gottman terms. How has that informed your research? And then uh, I guess transition to, I know you do lots of supervision. Can you talk about that? And then, uh, you know, how, what recommendations do you have to other clinicians? Yeah, absolutely. So we did adopt some Gottman method language post hoc as we were engaging in our data analysis. And we were looking at these themes, those words of turn away, turn towards and turn against really fit with what we were seeing from uh, our participants. One of the interventions that I think could be really helpful with couples around this uh, is something that's called the dreams within conflict. 
Uh, and the idea with the dreams within conflict intervention is that um, when, when couples are doing this and what we know about couple relationships, the majority of their conflict is going to be by definition non-solvable, right? It's ongoing. You're never going to get to the bottom of it. It's perpetual. So when couples do this, what we assume is that both partners are actually holding on to something that is deeply significant to them. And so the goal of the exercise is to get them to open up their hands and to begin to share what it is that they're holding on to. And so instead of maybe the typical content-focused, gridlocked conversation about whatever, right, whatever political issue that they're stuck around, the focus becomes very different now. We have a designated speaker. We have a, a designated listener. And the listener's job is to try and get at and begin to understand the symbolic meaning behind their partner's, we would say, political values. So what is that about for them? How does that connect to their history? What does this say about who they want to be in their world? And so it invites a very different kind of conversation that's not about who's right and who's going to win. It's actually a springboard now into deeper intimacy about understanding your partner uh, in a new kind of way. So it's not focused on problem solving. It's not focused on fixing anything. It's focused on maintaining a healthy, constructive dialogue uh, around how we're going to manage this in our relationship. You know, th there's all kinds of strategies, though, even outside of couples therapy. Um, I think any kind of intervention that's focused on emotion regulation strategies, because we know there's a lot of reactivity, emotional reactivity and anxiety around some of this stuff right now. Any uh, modalities of therapy that are focused heavily on acceptance, right? So I'm thinking of like third wave cognitive behavior therapies, like acceptance and commitment therapy, or the theme of radical acceptance in dialectical uh, behavioral therapy. Um, these can be very useful strategies to become more aware, not only of my own values, but become more okay with someone adopting a position that's different from you. That's the step that we have forgotten, I think, as Americans right now, the whole idea of agreeing to disagree. That is really built into the history of our DNA, right? Respectful, nonviolent dissent. We hash it out. We talk about our differences. And then we go out to eat. Well, we don't go out to eat, not, not anymore. But one day we go out to eat again and we remain connected. And so I think I'm hoping on the other side of all this will restore our, our, our ability to, to do just that. No, I think he talk. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah. I was going to say, do you have any advice for folks, you know, with the 2020 election seeming even more divisive than the 2016 election and with all of the drama, we'll call it, that is still out there pending with recounts and lawsuits and, you know, everything under the sun that could happen between now and January. As people, um, you know, we'll use the word see, whether it's in person or virtually, their family, these hol this holiday season that's approaching us, you know, what are some tips uh, that you can recommend to kind of get away from that tension or at least try to ease it um, if, if there are some, some very political differences that will be highlighted? It's such a good question. And, and my goodness, what a timely conversation as we go into the holidays, right? Uh, you know, they say in real estate, right? What really matters, three things, uh, location, location, location. What I would say about this, this is how I've been coaching my clients 
three things that I think are really important. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Um, here's here's what I what I mean by that. So I was working with an individual client this a couple of weeks ago, struggling with run of the mill anxiety and depression. And she came into that appointment not doing particularly well. And so we began with trying to explore the factors related to that. And we actually began to take some inventory on her day. So her day began by a quick scan of her newsfeed on her iPhone. As she started her remote work, she had the TV on in the background, regularly oscillating between CNN and Fox News because she wanted to be balanced and she wanted to hear the news from both sides. Throughout the day, she's getting dings and vibrating updates on her phone related to political news. Her husband comes home, they talk about politics and she wraps up the day with, <laughs> with the, the latest cap of the news in the evening. Um, and we explored what kind of impact that was having on her. And she recognized, my goodness, the way that I am binging on political content, maybe that's not so good for me. And when I say yes to political content all day long, by necessity, I'm saying no to something else. And so we began exploring what are the things she's saying no to right now because she's so engrossed in politics. And she identified exercise. Uh, writing, which is very restorative for her, many of her self-care practices that were being kind of uh, put on the side table. Uh, and so she began to erect some boundaries and think about the kind of relationship she was forging uh, with political content. She was in a better position. And so I think likewise, as we go into the holidays, thinking about um, good boundaries. So that's not to say let's make politics taboo. I actually think talking about it's healthy. That's what we learned from our research, having some conversations. But for a minute, can we deprivilege politics a little bit? So let's not only talk about politics. Let's see how's your mother doing? How's your work going? Let's see if we can establish, establish dialogue, touch points around politics as well. So it's not eclipsing every other important area uh, of the relationship. So the boundaries can be helpful. Typically what's recommended, you know, not such a huge boundary, not a privacy fence that we can't even see each other on the other side. That would be the, the turn away strategies, but also having a kind of fence where we could dialogue, but then stop and talk about other things um, and then also just monitoring the amount of content that I think you're consuming right now might be a helpful thing. Those are all great tips. Do you see that the tension between families could potentially have any long-term lasting effects as we go, you know, into next year, um, you know, how there will be a potential changeover, I'll call it, of the presidency, uh, as that is yet to be decided in a few ways. Um, but, you know, do you think, do you foresee that that these could be lasting tensions? Um, I really hope not. I really hope not. But I'm afraid the answer to that is maybe yes. I know in my supervision groups um, that the name of the game right now seems to be cut off. Um, and there are these uh, value conflicts and when they try to dialogue, there's this escalation process. Some of that is due in the literature, this, this uh, dynamic that's described uh, affective polarization. And affective polarization is just this, you know, we used to more debate around the issues. 
and maybe I'd have some emotional responses to the, the positions that you're adopting. But affective polarization suggests that my in-group membership as a liberal or as a Republican has become such a central part of my identity that if I know that you're on the other side, it already gins up for me feelings of disgust and anger and contempt and a sense of wanting to belittle you. And my goodness, that makes it hard to maintain a relationship. And so what I think is happening a lot, particularly with adolescents and parents, right? We've got teenagers that are at this developmental phase where they're wanting to carve out their own niche. They're wanting to have their own voice. And so developmentally, it's really normative to begin to push back uh, against their parents. But what seems to be happening sometimes in this environment um, that it's getting to a level where it feels like the only way to manage the, the, the tension, to manage the anxiety around the difference is to disengage altogether and to build a wall. Um, and so I, I do think that's a problem for us right now. And when you think about it, we're all have, we all have these larger system stressors like right now, like the pandemic. Uh, and the best way to manage stress is to lean on your attachment figures, your loved ones. But if we have these ruptures, we're not able to do that. And so that has implications even for personal coping. Um, and so I, I think uh, it's good sometimes when you notice the escalation, take a break, take a breather, um, maybe talk about something else for a little bit. Try to remember this relationship remaining intact is a lot more important than the political conversation. Uh, you think about it, you know, even this time around, right? Uh, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Is it? Didn't they say that four years ago? Didn't they say that four years before that? I anticipate they're going to say it uh, four years uh, in four years from now, too. And is that the most important thing in your life? Must it be? Is it more important than your marriage? Is it more important than your relationship with your kid? Is it more important than being a good neighbor? I hope not. I hope not. You know, as I hear you talk, I think one recommendation I would make to you is hopefully we can get you to be the narrator uh, or the monitor of, uh, of the next debate, if there is one uh, presidential <laughs> next time around. Maybe no thanks. You. No thanks. Come on, you got to take on that challenge. Let's go. I saw what they did to Chris Wallace. I've got no interest in that. <laughs> you have the mute button also. Yeah. We'll get one yeah. of those. There you go. <laughs> I like that. And, you know, I think, you know, some of the political stuff, you know, reaches other way. I've heard discussions already about vaccinations and not getting vaccinations, masks that's or not. That's the next one. It's very broad and it, it, it's there. You know, one of the things I know that's coming up and will you be touching upon any of the, I guess, what you what you've, you and your partners in the research have done and uh, tell us about the training that's coming up in January, whether you'll be kind of seeding it a little bit with what your research is, uh, has shown. So one of the things we did identify and I think learn from our participants is there is a lack of preparation uh, for mental health professionals in terms of how do we actually address this in therapy? Because, and this has come up a lot in supervision and it's come up for my supervisees really in a variety of ways. Um, one way that it comes up is what am I supposed to do here, right? So you've got a counselor whose political identity is, is really progressive and liberal um, and then you've got a client talking about their attraction to QAnon, a more extremist right kind of groups, and this ethical dilemma the therapist has around how do I address, address that? Should I address that? Um, how do I bracket and not impose my personal values? But what if they're actually affiliating with a group 
that is harmful to someone else. So do I disclose, not disclose? Do I think of that as a political, I mean, a therapeutic intervention or not? So some real tension there for the therapist around, I think, balancing two uh, ethical principles that are very central to our professional identity. One is working within the frame of reference of our client, but the other is the responsibility to be a social advocate. And there's some real tension, I think, between those two. So what do we do when there's a political identity conflict between therapist and client? Uh, but then also, how do we help couples? And then how do we help families? One of the things I'm deliberately doing right now uh, as a supervisor is I'm bringing up politics in supervision almost every single week. And the focus is not so much on political content, uh, but the focus is on political process, how my therapists are being affected by the environment and how is that impacting their work. My goal with that is to normalize discussions around politics and supervision. We talk about in supervision, the idea of isomorphism, that dynamics that occur at one level of the system can occur also at the other level of the system. So if we can normalize discussions of politics and supervision, it encourages therapists to do the same thing with clients. And what I think we've learned so far is, you know, it's good to check in with clients, especially when something is, is really kind of pronounced politically in that moment. Uh, and we've discovered some folks, they're not really affected. But for some of our clients, their political identity is a very salient aspect uh, of who they are. And we do want therapy to be a place where it's okay to process the intersection between that stress and their mental health and their meaningful relationships. And so we want to get more comfortable at creating an invitational space for clients to process that. Um, so those are some of the things we're doing. Okay, great. And in January, you're going to be doing a training, correct? A training. Uh, 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 yes. Oh, I, I am. I am. Almost and I, I, I almost forgot. So yeah, I'm going to be doing a, a training on the anatomy of couple relationships. And so we're going to be looking at what does the research suggest about uh, what are sort of the features or, or, or the profile of uh, healthy couples versus couples in trouble. And we're actually going to, we'll review uh, at length, a couple of different interventions that you could use with couples, particularly couples who are uh, politically divided. What all of our listeners out there, um, this is a two uh, CE continuing education event with CEs provided uh, sponsored by the APA, and the examining the anatomy of couple relationships will be uh, held on Thursday, January seventh, from three to five p.m. Eastern. Uh, for anyone interested, they can register on our CBI Center for Education website, which is www.cbicenterforeducation.com. And for only a $10 ticket, uh, you do get to sit in on that two-hour lecture uh, provided by Dr. J. Yeah, it's, it's outstanding. I've seen it before. People responded well. And I've even been approached publicly. When is he... When is Dr. J going to be doing another training? So uh, people really like that. You know, one other thing that comes to mind is I know you do some interesting thing with couples counseling, but a little bit more intensive. And the one thing that comes to mind is you talk about this intensity of emotion. Can you speak a little bit about how that can sometimes be in a therapy session, not helpful and how these, what are these intensive weekends and how it can help with that particular barrier? Yeah, 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 yeah. So 
paying attention to physiology in couples therapy is really, really important. Uh, we don't want them running too cool, but we also don't want them uh, running too hot. Uh, so one of the things we often do when we work with couples is we hook them up to a pulse oximeter. So it tracks their level of physiological arousal. And the reason that we're doing that is that we know when couples are flooded, and that is typically indicated by a heart rate of over 100 beats uh, per minute, they begin to lose access to important regions uh, of their brain. So they, they really have very limited access to the prefrontal cortex, which is the part responsible for problem solving, decision making, uh, effective listening. Um, in those moments, we really have a lot of activation uh, in the amygdala and the brainstem, um, and it's just firing. They've got those alarm bells going off. And this is when a lot of damage is actually done to the relationship. And so in couples therapy, what we're often doing, we've got a preset alarm to 100 beats per minute. When it happens, we stop the interaction, we take a break, we engage in some grounding techniques or breathing. And this is not to avoid the conversation. We focus on this self and sometimes even other soothing. We bring their partner in to help soothe them as well. We get the arousal down so that they can begin to re-engage the conversation more constructively. Uh, it's actually pretty funny uh, from the Gottman research. Sometimes when a couple was flooding in the laboratory, uh, they would have someone knock on the door of the love lab, go in and say, we need you to stop talking. We're having technical issues with your microphone. Someone would go in, they'd tinker around with the microphone for about 30 minutes and they would each just be reading a magazine. And invariably, when that individual would leave, they'd revisit the conversation, they'd do so far more effectively. So paying attention to the body and couples therapy really matters. Um, and so one of the things that I do is something that's called marathon therapy. Um, it's a cash pay thing, which really nice about that is we're not working with the limits of commercial insurance. Really hard sometimes you're doing couples therapy, you're 40 minutes in, we're finally getting to someplace meaningful and important and we're doing important work and oh shoot, we gotta wrap things up because we only have five minutes left. Um, this is a two-day intensive intervention just with you and I, and we do some assessment pieces ahead of that two-day intensive. So when we are there, we are focused exclusively on repair, rebuilding your attachment, reconnecting, building kind of a vision uh, for the future. Awesome. It's yeah, I, did, I, did, I just sound like you can get really effective uh, having all that time, getting after all that passion uh, behind you to get some to good work for the rest of the time with the couple. And so if I heard you right, it's just you and the couple for those two days. It is. And to be honest, the first time I did it, I was a little bit of a skeptic myself. Can this work? And then I fell in love with the model to see the kind of responses, to have the time and to take the time that you need to do good work. And then sometimes there's a follow-up plan, depending on uh, where they are. Maybe it's warranted to do a little bit of uh, additional work or maintenance work uh, to help them maintain their gains. Uh, but generally, it's been, it's been really effective. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us here, Dr. J. Uh, this is a very hot button topic and we're very excited to have you share your research with us as well as your wonderful insights. So we're sure that our listeners really enjoyed this uh, today as much as Kevin and I did. So thank you so much for being here with us. Hey, this was a ton of fun. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Kevin. This was a blast. Thanks wonderful. for doing it. Take care.
Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us this week on the Barrier Breakdown. As always, you can find us on Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, as well as check out our website, www.cbicenterforeducation.com, where we provide low-cost, robust continuing education credits in the interest of improving the clinical efficacy of behavioral health clinicians. You can also find us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like, which helps other viewers find us more easily. But we thank you all for being here with us today. We hope you stay safe and healthy. And thank you for joining us on The Barrier Breakdown. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast. Check out our website at cbicenterforeducation.com for more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events.